0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in the book of Isaiah. We have arrived at Isaiah chapter 39, Isaiah chapter 39 this morning, covering one chapter per week. Today it gets easier because there's only eight verses to deal with in chapter 39. But this concludes the first major portion of the book. Chapters 40 through 66 are markedly different, different in tone, different in uh, overall message in some respects, uh, so much so that it has caused a lot of Bible skeptics and some other critics and whatnot to try to uh, imagine a second author or even a third author for the book of Isaiah. So you might read one of these liberal commentaries that talks about Deutero-Isaiah or Trito-Isaiah or some of these uh, terms that they've invented. That's where it comes from. Uh, But we are at the hinge right now. Chapter 39 with the uh, death of Hezekiah kind of brings this portion of the book to a conclusion. And It's a very sad conclusion. Uh, where We're disappointed at the end of Hezekiah's life. But in so many respects, that mirrors the Lord's disappointment in Judah. (laughs) And uh, taking Judah into captivity, into Babylon, is in fact closing of an episode in in Israel's history. So we're at a hinge. Next week, uh, things start getting better. You might imagine, chapter 40, comfort, oh comfort, my people, says your God, speak kindly to Jerusalem. And we begin the second portion of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, that contains much comfort, much hope, many of the millennial anticipations, the uh, fullness of time, the new heavens and new earth. So many of those things come in the second half of, uh, of Isaiah, as does the, uh, the suffering Messiah. Isaiah 53 is coming up. that has the lamb uh, who is crushed for our iniquities. And so uh, many, uh, many things we have to look forward to. For today, however, we've got chapter 39. We've got a visit from Merodach Baladon, and I've been practicing that name all week. Merodach, Baladon, and the Babylonian emissaries that are coming to Jerusalem, and the final failure on the part of Hezekiah, who has already survived the sin and the death once, who uh, has repented and recovered and been granted 15 additional years to his life, and yet those are not years that uh, he should be Pleased with or proud of uh, because of the faith failures that we observe in this, uh, in this chapter today. All right, so Isaiah 39:1. At that time, Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And so Hezekiah was pleased and showed him all his treasure house and the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and his whole armory and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house uh, nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, what did these men say and from where have they come to you? And this begins the prophetic rebuke that uh, Hezekiah has to receive from Isaiah. And this, by the way, I believe is the last of the prophetic rebukes because this is the final year of Isaiah's ministry. He's going to go into seclusion, go into retirement, finish writing this book, and he is out of the ministry uh, from this point on. All right. And Hezekiah said in verse 3, they have come to me from a far country from Babylon. And that, uh, that's the problem. So before we get started this morning, let's take a moment for silent prayer to ask God the Father to bless our time in his word, to feed us from his word, and to humble us under the authority of doctrine. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessings that we have to study to show ourselves approved. Father, we thank you for the Book of Isaiah. We thank you for all of Scripture. We thank you when um, these great heroes from the Old Testament, when they uh, they make bad choices, they uh, they sin, they make foolish choices contrary to your will, and uh, your Word calls them on it. Father, no excuses are given. No uh, the Scripture doesn't hide the the failures of uh, Abraham or David or Hezekiah or anybody, Father. And the only sinless person in the Bible is is Jesus. And Father, I thank you for that. I pray that we might draw encouragement from that this morning. Uh, If we uh, observe the life of Hezekiah and his ups and his downs and God's grace to give him an extra 15 years. And and if we fail to respond to grace, Father, uh, woe be unto us. I pray we might learn from this lesson today, might learn from the example of Scripture. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are following the faith defeat and recovery of chapter 38. Are you tired of seeing this slide yet? I promise you it's the last time I'll show it to you. Chapters 36 through 39 are largely parallel to 2 Kings 18 through 20. And so if you want to read that record in 2 Kings, uh, probably written by Jeremiah, who knows. But if you want to read the history, the secular history, the the reign of those kings, you get it from the kingly perspective in in 2 Kings. You get it from the priestly perspective in 1 and 2 Chronicles. And that's what we're going to see a little bit today is the priestly commentary on uh, Hezekiah's reign. We get that out of 2 Chronicles 32. And so a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, we were in Isaiah 36, and we showed the parallel to 2 Kings 18. Yeah, uh, two weeks ago in chapter 37, we showed the parallel to 2 Kings 19. Last week and this week, both, Isaiah 38 and Isaiah 39, are both contained within chapter 20. Of Second Kings, and the reason for that is that Second Kings does not include the great psalm the the music that Hezekiah writes in response to his being forgiven of the, uh, the sin and the death. And when he is granted an extra 15 years Hezekiah responds with music. He responds by writing a great hymn of praise and thankfulness uh, on that occasion. And he's looking forward to having a son that's born. He's looking forward to teaching that son from the Word of God and singing that music with his son from the Word of God. And uh, it would be kind of nice if there was no chapter 39. (laughs) We would like to kind of end uh, Hezekiah's life with chapter 38, because those were very nice sentiments, very good thinking pertaining to what he had hoped to do. We know from chapter 39, though, that he did not. And I think we can also observe from the reign of Manasseh. When Manasseh takes the throne at the age of 12 he's a wicked boy and he reigns for 55 almost entirely 54 wicked years. Only the final year of Manasseh's life is anything positive happened because he gets saved after, on, in his 55th year in the final year of his reign. Manasseh is a tremendous piece of work but he's, we're not going to cover that in the Isaiah series. Isaiah you might recall served four kings and uh, Hezekiah is the final of, uh, of those kings. Now, in chapter 39, King Hezekiah suffered his final faith defeat. Remember last week we talked about the faith victory from chapter 37 that led to a faith defeat in chapter 38 that led to then repentance and uh, God turning cursing into blessing and giving him another 15 years to live. And so he's had victory. When 185,000 Assyrians are killed in one night, he has defeat Uh, where he's told to put his affairs in order. He's going to die the sin of death. He has victory or at least rescue when uh, the, the sun shadow goes back on the steps 10 degrees and he gets 15 years added to his life. Now he has a final defeat. And the final feat is unfortunate to where that will end. And even how he embraces it, which we'll see at the end of this chapter. I find that unfortunate as well. So in in chapter 39, King Hezekiah suffered his final faith defeat, verses 1 through 4, which we've already read. And then uh, he receives a prophecy of the Babylonian captivity in Isaiah 39, verses 5 through 8. So we can divide the chapter into two parts, 1 through 4 and 5 through 8. Now, um, did we read verse 4 already? Yes, we have. Uh, because in verse 3, Hezekiah said, they've come to me from a far country from Babylon. That's where I stopped. They've come from Babylon. Maybe you've heard of it, okay? Isaiah, you know, it's like you're introducing somebody to somebody and they already know them, right? And then you realize, oh, I didn't know you were already acquainted, okay? Because two kings ago, uh, Isaiah gave some very lengthy discourses on Babylon. Uh, chapter 13 and chapter 14 are powerful messages on Babylon, including the five-eye wills of Satan in the context of a message against Babylon. Isaiah knows very well about Babylon. And had Hezekiah been godly, had Hezekiah thought about what he was doing, he would have received these envoys from Babylon and maybe he would have gone to Isaiah and uh, said, uh, you know, do you know anything about these guys? <laughs> uh, Should I be careful with these guys? But there's no consultation at all. Right? There's no, no consultation at all. Like, you know, <laughs> believers decide they're going to do what they're going to do. They don't even ask the pastor to pray about it or anything. They just go and do it. And then they tell the pastor afterwards, oh, by the way, I, I took a job in Kathmandu. Oh, really? Okay. Where's Kathmandu? Um, in any event, there is a place whereby you want to seek the counsel of your spiritual leadership. All right? And this is a failure here. Similar to how they didn't, the Gibeonites uh, misled Israel in, in Joshua's conquest, right? They showed up and acted like, oh, we're from a far country. No, they weren't. They were from right around the corner. They were the lying bunch of Gibeonites. But because Joshua and, and Israel failed to inquire the Lord and find out who those guys were, they just accepted what they were told and they were a thorn in their side from, for, for years afterwards. You're familiar with that story? I think that 's being repeated right here. These emissaries show up from Babylon, and King Hezekiah is so full of himself and how great he is and how rich he 's become, and how everybody thinks he 's just the greatest guy around, and if everybody starts telling you that, pretty soon you start to believe it all right, and that 's the problem. So he says they 've come from a far country from Babylon, and that 's the problem, so Hezekiah and so Isaiah says, Well, what have they seen in your house??" Have you guarded your soul? Right? We talked about that last hour. What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they've seen everything. All that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. Well, what a fool. All right? What a fool. So Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Who's the Lord of hosts? Yahweh Tsevayoth, that's his army name, okay? That's his military name. When Yahweh Tsevayoth has something to say, it's generally not a happy message. And uh, this is what's going to happen. They are going to go into captivity. Behold, days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Since you showed him everything, that's what they're taking, in the Babylonian captivity, nothing will be left, and this is uh, this is the sadness of what otherwise was a great king. Uh, Hezekiah was a marvelous king. It was just that final the final years of his life were not good, and that's fairly common. I, I suspect maybe they would have done better had they had more co-regencies <laughs> and let the younger guy become king earlier and let the older king kind of retire a little bit and, and stop plunging into the foolishness that they plunged into which uh, we see again and again we're going to talk about this now don't just accept my opinion on this there is priestly commentary on the life of hezekiah that's given in second chronicles and so if you hold your finger in isaiah or stick your church bulletin in there and uh or the bible ribbon right doesn't have to be your finger bubble gum wrapper whatever you have available hold your place in uh, isaiah 39 and let's uh Try to find Second Chronicles, okay? That's in your Bible. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Before you get to Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, okay? Um, second Chronicles, chapter thirty-two. We don't turn to Chronicles very often, and it's probably ought to. Second Chronicles, chapter thirty-two, because we have priestly commentary. Chronicles is largely parallel to King said Samuel and Kings. All right. And so if first and second Samuel was originally one Hebrew book and first and second Kings was originally one Hebrew book and they were first first and second Chronicles was originally one Hebrew book and uh, Chronicles is parallel to both Samuel and Kings, but it's coming from a priestly viewpoint it's giving divine commentary from the priesthood view of things. And so there is much more commentary related to the temple, related to uh, sacrifices, related to the loss of glory and uh, Satan whispering in David's ear, things like that. You get those kind of stories in Chronicles that you don't get in Kings. And so this is the priestly commentary on the life of Hezekiah. And uh, you'll notice... I said I had an easy day with only eight verses, and here I pick a chapter with uh, 14 verses. But that's all right. 20 through 33. King Hezekiah and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed about this and cried out to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who destroyed every mighty warrior, commander, and officer in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned in shame to his own land. This was two weeks ago. We saw this in Isaiah 37, Remember? And in that context, we read 185,000 Assyrians were killed in one night. But here we have divine commentary that highlights the role of the mighty men, the mighty warriors, the commanders, and the officers, which we discussed two weeks ago was a better translation of the Eliph, of the thousand that were there. All right. Um, So he returned in shame to his own land. And when he had entered the temple of his God, Some of his own children killed him there with a sword. It was about a 20-year span in that as he lived in seclusion in Nineveh. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others and guided them on every side. There were other Assyrian kings after Sennacherib to, to worry about. But God was faithful. God had promised Judah that Assyria would not capture them. Assyria took the northern kingdom. It's going to be Babylon that takes the southern kingdom. And Hezekiah should have known that and been protective against those Babylonians creeping around. All right? So, but now notice, uh, after this comes, I think, a key verse. And the priestly commentary, which we don't have in Isaiah, we don't have in Kings, but notice this in verse 23. And many were bringing gifts to the Lord at Jerusalem and choice presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah, so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations thereafter. Hezekiah becomes a legend on the world stage. He probably, you know, he if it had been around back then, he would have received the Nobel Prize, right? He would have been uh, uh, celebrated at the United Nations. He would have had all kinds of people singing his praises like there's the greatest leader ever because here's someone that finally has stood up to the Assyrians and sent Sennacherib packing. And now, if there is a king that can send Sennacherib packing, I want to be his friend, <laughs> okay? And so if I'm a Philistine or a Hittite or, well, they were gone, or a, uh, an Edomite or an Egyptian or any of the, the, uh, the, the, the uh, Phoenicians, any of the people around, you want to be friends with a guy that can send Assyria back to Nineveh. And that's what they did. And they start coming and they start listening. And they go, wow, you're a smart guy. Wow, you're a wise guy. And, uh, and they start bringing him gifts, they start making him as rich as they possibly can. You know, they, in, what do they expect to get out of that? What does the world think if they're if they're paying the paying the fiddler? They get to call the tune. They get to make friends, and maybe they get they get help next time Assyria comes back. If Assyria comes back, kind of a thing. And this gives us the backdrop. I think this explains the pride. This explains the fall. The pride that goes before the fall. This explains his thinking in showing off these treasuries to the Babylonians, all right? As if he is now going to be a partner with Merodach-Baladon and the next rebellion against, uh, against Assyria. So we, uh, we have the clues, and I think a big clue right there in verse 23, but it doesn't stop with that. Verse 24, in those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And this is the sequence. Dead Assyrians and the defeat of Sennacherib, followed by the sickness, followed by the, uh, I'm sorry, followed by the wealth, followed by the sickness, followed by the Babylonians hearing that you had been sick, all right, you got to keep it in that order. Scripture keeps it in that order. And there's too many liberal commentaries out there, and pathetically, there's even conservative dispensational commentaries out there that try to reorder these chapters. And I believe that's a problem because they're trying to, they don't know who uh Baladan son of Baladan was and they they think he was a different guy on the Assyrian inscriptions and they have allowed their archaeology of the Assyrian inscriptions to adjust their dating of the of the divided kingdom and and to me that's heartbreaking anyway that's that's a different story now uh, where am i in those days hezekiah became mortally ill okay this was last week this is how to not die the sin and the death and he prayed to the lord and the lord spoke to him and gave him a sign Notice though, but Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received. Understand what that means. Grace is grace, and we we want to respond to grace graciously. We're not paying God back for any grace we've received, but we do want to express grace in the application of graciousness. If we fail to do that, we are guilty as Hezekiah here in this context, giving no return. If he has comforted you, why are you not comforting others? If he's been gracious to you, why are you not gracious to others? If he has forgiven you of all your sin, why can you not in Christ forgive others? Hezekiah did not give return to the benefit he received. Notice, because his heart was proud. And I don't think it's a far stretch to look at that proud heart in verse 25 and the wealth of all the nations from verse 23 you know, the, the wealth of the nations streaming to Jerusalem, that, that almost sounds messianic. That almost sounds like fulfillment of prophecies. That almost sounds like like a king could get full of himself if he was not humble. And this is what happened to Solomon. This is what happened to, sadly, it's what happened to David. This is what happened to Satan before his fall. This is the pattern again and again and again throughout the scriptures. So he gave no return for the benefit he received because his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and on Jerusalem. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. That's key too. In the days of Hezekiah. That's what we're going to see as we get back to Isaiah 39. So he had a a last bit of regret, a last bit of humbling, and because of that, God said, All right then, it's gonna happen in your children's generation, not yours. That sound familiar? Something actually similar happened in the life of Solomon, where the split from Jeroboam and Rehoboam in the Civil War came after Solomon's lifetime. Something similar is happening here after Hezekiah's lifetime. Then God's wrath is poured forth in the person of Hezekiah in the person of Manasseh. All right? It shouldn't be a shock to church-age believers. (laughs) If you're clueless as to what you're looking at, it should not be a shock when God gives us the president and the governor and the you name it, fill in the blank. We have the leaders God gives us either for our cursing or for our blessing. And if you have a perspective of divine viewpoint, it should be clear. Hezekiah was for blessing, Manasseh was for cursing. And it says so right here. So we have this priestly commentary. Now, I like this. I believe this validates our understanding of the eleph from chapter 37, that it referenced the captains, the chieftains, the professional military officers, not the foot soldiers, not the the grunts, if you will. That we understand eleph there not to be a numerical number of thousand. It wasn't 185,000, all right? It was 185 eleph, or if you prefer the plural, elephim. Okay, the ilu, ilufim. The plural ilufim wasn't thousands, it was leaders, it was military men, it was the uh, officer corps according to 2 Chronicles 32. And with the officer corps gone has uh, the uh, Sennacherib had no chance. Sennacherib could not maintain control of his armies, could not operate an effective siege, could not risk remaining in the field with Egypt on the way, or the Philistines on the way, or somebody else on the way, or even the Jews themselves on the way, with no officer corps in the field, with all, un, with all basically untrained shock troops in the field, who weren't really that happy serving in the Assyrian army anyway, with a bunch of grunts in the field and no officer corps, Sennacherib beat a hasty retreat back to uh, back to Nineveh, and you can imagine, 185 of your senior commanders are dead overnight. What's to stop you from being next tomorrow night? So uh, clearly, troops don't want to be there anymore, and it was, uh, it was a great deliverance. So if you want more on that, send me an email. I can give you some journal information. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. I believe it also applies, the Elufim understanding also applies to the census numbers in the Exodus. All right? It wasn't three million Jews walking through the Red Sea because the numbers there, we want to understand the numbers related to those Elufim. But notice the inflow of wealth. And it was wealth to the Lord and to Hezekiah, both objects there in Second uh, Chronicles 32. The inflow of wealth to the Lord and to Hezekiah provides additional explanation for the Babylonian emissaries of Isaiah 39. Babylon was looking for allies. Babylon is particularly the Merodach clan. All right. They had been, they were Chaldeans, they were in Babylon, they were trying to set up a local throne in Babylon separate from uh, Assyrian domination. And they succeeded frequently. They would occasionally throw off the Assyrians and have their own kingdom. And two or three different times they stood on their own until Assyria came back and stomped them again and stomped them again. So we know the motivation for the Assyrians coming in. How rich are you? How much gold do you have? How much silver do you have? How many troops can we field? Clearly, we know the Babylonian uh, interest in this in this treasure, and it helps us to, uh, to explain this. The wealth can be a problem, okay? The adversity test is a problem, but the prosperity test is worse. And uh, under the prosperity test, you get all kinds of people crawling out from the woodwork that couldn't give you the time of day under the adversity test, but boy, they sure want to give you some good ideas for what to do with your money. And uh, under the prosperity test, you start to feel important. You start to think, wow, I really mean something to these people. No, they're just using you. And when they're done with you, they'll move on to the next one. Understand that for what it is. In any event, that inflow of wealth. Hezekiah rejoiced at the Babylonian emissaries. The actual term is joy. Hezekiah was pleased in Isaiah 39.2 that Merodach Baladon, son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to king Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased. It brought him pleasure. What brings you pleasure? What brings God pleasure? And here's pleasure. Is it, is it pleasing to be acknowledged? And why? Are you pleased that Yahweh is getting the glory for a work that Yahweh has done? Or you pleased that somebody thinks you're special and they're saying good things about you. That's the wrong kind of pleasure. And so he showed him all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory and all that was found in his treasuries. What in the world do you do that when you get a gift from somebody? Say, "Oh, thanks. I'll add it to my hoard. I'll add it to the pile. Thanks for this gift." It's a drop in the bucket compared to what all these other guys have been giving me, but I'll add it to the pile. And why am I now going to boast over this whole storehouse? Why am I going to be like the dragon smog and show off my piles of gold and loot and everything else, okay? Unless you think that this is the next stage. If you think that a partnership with Babylon is going to put you into the empire mode, what kind of delusions of grandeur was... uh, Hezekiah plunging into at this point. I think we have clues, and I think the clues are sustained by the Scriptures. He was pleased. And so everything he does thereafter is based upon, Scripture tells us, based upon being pleased. I don't know about you, but choices you make based on your happiness and uh, the emotional uh, ups and downs of the moment... I, would, uh, I, don't, I don't recommend that. All right. I recommend you make choices based upon how the Word of God shapes your thinking and then you worry about please being pleasing to the Father, not your own personal happiness from day to day. Am I pleasing to the Father? Am I operating according to biblical norms and standards? That's the basis I want to put. I want to put mentality in the driver's seat and emotions side by side. All right. I want to put emotions in the driver's seat. Understand what I'm saying? What am I saying? I'm saying that to simply do all of this based upon pleasure is a problem. Hezekiah was pleased, and not once does he consult Isaiah about any of this. Isaiah shows up after he's already done what he's done. Oh, okay. You did that, huh? Huh. Too bad for you, okay? Because what's done is done, and now you got to face the consequences. If you'd have told me ahead of time I might have giving you something to think about instead of feeling. You could have thought about it. You could have digested the doctrine from Isaiah 13 and 14. And you could have known what these Babylonians are all about. Well, it didn't happen, so here's the consequences. All right. Impressed by the distance they traveled to see him and his treasures, perhaps the distance and the treasures, or also perhaps his devotion to Solomon created a desire to rise in wealth and international prestige. And that is borne out by the verse we already read, Second Chronicles 32. We know that he collected Solomon's Proverbs. We saw that last week, that he collected Solomon's Proverbs. You turn to Proverbs 25 and you see there's a whole collection there, which is chapters 25 through what, 30, 25 through 29. Uh, that section of Proverbs was Solomon's Proverbs that had been collected and collated and systematized by Hezekiah and his men. Likewise, organizing the Levitical choir. We gave that to you last week as well. His devotion to Solomon, perhaps, his devotion to Solomon created a desire to rise in wealth and international prestige. And I don't think it's debatable. Hezekiah was the richest Jewish king since Solomon. But he didn't even come to just a tiny fraction of Solomon. It was To think that you're Solomon-like is kind of insulting to Solomon's wealth when you understand it from 1 Kings chapter 10. Let me grab that one next. Say, Pastor, when do we rescue our finger? My finger's gone to sleep now. It's been All right, you, know, you get your finger back in a moment. But 1 Kings chapter 10. Do you know how rich Solomon was? I think if we adjust for inflation, <laughs> put it in 21st century terms, I don't know the world has ever seen a wealthier human being on the planet. I mean, so wealthy that silver was valueless. They didn't even track it. And, and you'll notice, I don't want to read the whole chapter. Too. Just read chapter 10 sometime this week, soon, today maybe. Read it and get the, the wealth of Solomon in here. But also notice foreign emissaries. Here comes the Queen of Sheba. Hey, I heard about you. And she wants to hear about his wisdom. She wants to hear from Yahweh. The Babylonians just said, I heard about you. I'm going to add to your wealth. And they don't have any interest in Yahweh. All right. And so we've got the Queen of Sheba in this. We have Hiram uh, and the uh, friendship with Tyre. And that was basically because of David. Solomon entered into that. And then um, verse 14 of 1 Kings 10, the weight of gold which came into Solomon in one year was 666. Can't explain it. 666 talents of gold. I have no connection with that in, in the Antichrist. But It is the same number, 666, and that is a lot of gold. That is an unbelievable amount of gold. Besides that, from the traders, and that's just his own personal cut. Besides that, from the traders and the wares of the merchants, then there's the commerce that takes place. And all the kings of the Arabs and the governors of the the country. So King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. 300 shields of beaten gold using three minas of gold in each shield. Why? Because he could. (laughs) You know, why make such a large shield with so much gold? Because nobody else can. You're showing off at this point. A great throne of ivory, overlaid with refined gold, six steps to the throne, because you can a round top to the throne at its rear, arms on each side of the seat, two lions standing beside the arms, twelve lions standing there on six steps on one side and on the other. Nothing like it was made for any other kingdom. And I wonder sometimes, when Nebuchadnezzar was making his hanging gardens and when Nebuchadnezzar was doing what he was doing to try to beautify Babylon, he got very prideful over what he had built, thinking nothing like this has ever been on the earth. Well, was he jealous of Solomon and the tradition and the history there. Because much of what he used to decorate, he plundered from the temple of Jerusalem, the temple of Solomon. Alright, I said I didn't want to read the whole chapter to you, but there's more. uh, Peacocks, all kinds of stuff. Apes and peacocks. And uh, he became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. So all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon. Notice though, to hear his wisdom which God had put on his heart. That's why the queen of Bathsheba was showing up. Is that why the Babylonians were showing up? Were they seeking out Hezekiah's great wisdom? I think by then he'd already departed from wisdom. More things here with chariots and horsemen and then unfortunately wives, that's the problem. And uh, silver was as common as stones in Jerusalem and cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees and all of this wealth. Nothing else was like it on the earth. And then, sadly, chapter 11 wives. He multiplied wives, and that was Solomon's downfall. Well, Hezekiah didn't get to the wife stage. Hephzibah was his only wife that we know of, and Manasseh was the only child that we know of. But he started to accumulate all this wealth, and he didn't accumulate it because of his wisdom, he accumulated it because a bunch of Gentiles made him rich. I find that to be extraordinary. Abraham wasn't going to take a dime from the king of Sodom. He says, I'm not going to have you say later on that you made me rich. He had fellowship with Melchizedek, but not the king of Sodom. Here's Hezekiah taking all this Gentile money and getting prideful over the whole process. So the divine sanctions against Hezekiah, I believe they echo the divine sanctions against Solomon. Divine sanctions against Hezekiah. Here's what happens. God says, all right, I've already revoked the sin unto death. You've already got your 15 years. I'm not going to shorten those. He can't shorten those. He promised him 15 years. God's not a liar and can't change his mind or go back and undo what he already promised. He promised him 15 years. He's going to get 15 years. But in his son's day, this nation is coming under the fifth cycle of discipline. And the slide begins with Manasseh, Josiah. Gave a a little reprieve, but the slide begins, unmistakably, with Manasseh. There's no turning back after Manasseh. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, days are coming that all that is in your house, all your fathers laid up to store this day, will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, they will be taken away. They will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. How about the book of Daniel for you right there, prophesied by Isaiah? Some Judean noble boys are going to be kidnapped, they're going to be castrated, they're going to be taken off to Babylon, they're going to be made officials in the Babylonian court and it's Hezekiah's fault. It's the judgment upon the house of Hezekiah. <laughs> That's pretty gruesome. I would really like the chapter to end there, but there's an eighth verse. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. Good. And the commentary in Second Chronicles said that he was humbled one last time. However, notice, because it does not come in his day. It does not come in his day. The word of the Lord which is, you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and truth in my days. There will be peace and truth in my days. How sad is that? Well, hey, as long as... I'm not here to see it, (laughs) right? As long as my generation can keep the party going, who cares what kind of debt I saddle on my children and grandchildren and six generations from now that can't pay back $18 trillion. Hey, we're having a party in our day and age. As long as trouble doesn't come in my day, you know, the reason why we train up a godly seed, the reason why we pass it on to our children and grandchildren, is so that they can teach it to generations we'll never see. We're supposed to pass on that heritage, not just say, "Well, we had a great, too bad, you're going to going suck in your day." right? Can you imagine? Too bad for you. What an attitude is that? We want our children, and this is the nature, well, sadly. The fall of the carnal mindset doesn't think about that. Carnality never thinks about consequences or who, le- who else gets hurt or what the ramifications are. Carnality only thinks, how much fun is this going to be? So, hey, let's go do this. And then here come the consequences. Oh, well. And it's your wife, it's your children, it's your church, it's whoever, it's your nation. When a king blows it, it's his nation that suffers. Sadly. Sadly. And this is kind of an interesting echo. First Kings 11 says when, when God finally pronounces the wrath on Solomon, after all the women and all the idolatry and all the things, he tells Solomon, he says, for David's sake, I will not take the kingdom from you. And he made a promise in the Davidic covenant that uh, he would not tear the kingdom away from Solomon. And so he's true to that promise. He says, I will uh, do it not in your days, But for the sake of your father David, I will tear it out from the hand of your son. And so Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, and Rehoboam is the son that loses ten tribes. Ten tribes go to the north under Jeroboam and, and establish another Jewish nation called the Kingdom of Israel. And Rehoboam is left with just Judah and Benjamin, only two tribes in the south. He says, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And so very similar to the judgment on, on uh, Solomon now comes the judgment on Hezekiah. And I, and I don't find that as an accident since Hezekiah st- became a disciple of Solomon, studied Solomon, loved Solomon. I, I believe he imitated, collected his Proverbs and, and all of that. So when God gives him a Solomon-like judgment... That ought, to, uh, that ought to mean something to him. Sadly, Hezekiah is fine with the judgment upon his children so long as peace, peace and truth exists in his generation. And that is such a short-sighted way of thinking of things. But that's the culture in which we live, isn't it? So, what's the bottom line here? What's the application we can glean from this chapter? Preoccupation with temporal life. Preoccupation with temporal life skews perspective for spiritual life. It skews it. I believe it, it focuses it on self, that even temporal life starts to get selfish, not even to affect your children, the generations after you, they'll, they'll fend for themselves, right? You start to think, well, my, my parents did nothing for me anyway. My grandparents did nothing for me anyway. Everything I got I worked for. Everything I got I did. I earned. I deserved. I'm all proud of myself. You start to think that and you fail to understand the grace that brought you to where you are. Preoccupation with temporal life skews perspective for spiritual life. Pride goes before destruction. There's a principle of Scripture. Proverbs 16, 18. The haughty spirit before the fall. Right? Pride goes before destruction. Anytime you find yourself in systems of pride, look out. Catch yourself when you can, or catch yourself as early as you can. And by that I mean, respond to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit is pointing out your pride. (laughs) Because you're not catching yourself. God is pointing out your pride for you, and spotlighting it, and saying, I don't like that. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if the Holy Spirit is spotlighting some pride in your life, catch on sooner rather than later. And do something about it, get with a program, get under teaching, adjust your thinking that 's called repentance. Get in the word of God, let the Word of God transform your thinking. Ask him to show you where those pride attitudes came from to root them out. Pride goes before destruction. How many examples do you need to this we can We can use the Hezekiah example today in isaiah thirty nine eight in the priestly commentary from second chronicles thirty two but that's just the, the last or the latest in a long string of other examples, starting with Satan in Job 41 and Ezekiel 28. David, King David in 1 Chronicles 21. There was a king after God's own heart. David was the greatest of all the Old Testament believers until you get to John the Baptist. And uh, yet he failed. He sinned. At the end of his life was not good. And why is it at the end of the life? Do believers just get, I think, they, they grow tired. Are they just tired of the battle? Are they tired of the of the uh, conflict? They had done so much. They laid so much. Now why are they getting stupid in their later years? Is it pride? Do you reach a point where you kind of get pleased with how your life has gone? You think, yeah, I've done a lot for God. Boy, he owes me. Look out. Look out, okay? The... Um, How many of these can we get to? I mentioned the dragon earlier. There's Leviathan in Job 41. This is why uh, we have the the powerful contrast that we have throughout the Scriptures. You've got a whole chapter here describing the dragon. Leviathan. And uh, he's got wings and Claws and teeth and he flies and he breathes fire and all the stuff here. He's not afraid of your weapons. Nothing on earth is like him. This is how the chapter ends. Nothing on earth is like him. He is the pinnacle of angelity, the the pinnacle of creation. One made without fear. He looks on everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. That's a title for Satan. The dragon He is king over all the sons of pride. If you have a president or a governor or a mayor or a dog catcher or whatever, you've got a political leader wrapped up in systems of pride. He's not serving Jesus Christ. He's serving the dragon. It comes down to that. Choose you this day whom you will serve. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. God knows how to humble the the proudful. The prideful. The proud. All right. You know what I'm saying. There's Satan. How about Ezekiel 28? You want to see the creation of Satan? Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel 20. There's a lot of pastors used to teach this that stopped teaching this recently. And I don't understand why other than a reluctance to delve into things angelic. But I find that sad. Because the being who is rebuked in this paragraph is a cherub. A cherub is an angel. It's not complicated. And this cherub is spoken of as the king of Tyre. In verse 12. Who had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Well, wait a minute. Who Who was in Eden, the garden of God? If he's talking to a human being, Adam and Eve are our only candidates. But if he's talking to an angel, there was somebody else in that garden too, wasn't there? Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx. The Look at this list. Boy, What a what a hide. This isn't fur, feathers, scales, or any other zoological animal covering. This is a spirit being. This is the glory of the dragon before his fall. The gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you on the day that you were created. The the being that he's rebuking here is a created being, not a born being. He wasn't born, he was created. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were the Messiah cherub who covers, and I placed you there. He was a prophet, priest, and king, and he... It's a foreshadowing of the Christ. A foreshadowing of so many different things. The Messiah cherub who covers. And I placed you there. You're on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. Do you see that? That is backwards from the human experience. He was created blameless and then became a sinner. Unrighteousness was found within him. Mental attitude, sin, of pride was generated within His thinking. Created sinless. Created righteous. Until unrighteousness was discovered within Him. That is backwards from the human experience. The human experience, and we got babies here this morning to illustrate this, the human experience is that we are born sinners. We are born unrighteous. We are born in Adam. We are born spiritually dead. And we remain sinners until... Righteousness is imputed to our account and we become saved by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the normal order in the human experience. The normal order is to be born unrighteous and receive righteousness by grace through faith. This guy getting rebuked, Satan in this chapter getting rebuked, was created righteous and fell into unrighteousness. The mental attitude sin of pride. Notice, by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. It was a pride issue, motivated by wealth. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, a covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. This is why I say he's insane. He is literally insane. He is out of his satanic mind. Brilliant. Genius. How many psychopaths are genius level intellect, but they're corrupted in their wisdom. That's the pattern we have here. Corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. Notice in verse 18, by the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Remember, he was a prophet priest and king. He had a priestly function. These stones on the dragon matched the stones in the high priest effort of, of Leviticus. He was the first money changer in the first temple. Understand that? It says, you profane, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Why do you think Jesus went so berserk in Jerusalem when he saw money changers in the temple? That wasn't really normal Jesus behavior to grab a scourge of cords and start whipping people and flipping tables over and pretty unique. He only did it twice in his whole earthly ministry. He'd seen it before, that's why. That's why he went berserk. In the human realm, the temple of Solomon was, was replicating Satan's original rebellion. And so we have the example of it here. Pride goes before destructions. We can illustrate it with Satan in Ezekiel 28. We can see his title, the king of the sons of pride in Job 41, the role of the Leviathan, the dragon over all of the fallen realm. We can see it in David in 1 Chronicles 21, 1 through 4, when um, Satan whispers into his ear to get him to start numbering the armies of Israel. David never won a battle because of his superior numbers. David won every battle because the Lord was with him. And yet, in this episode, towards the end of his life, he starts listening to Satan, and he wants to get a census on his armies. He wants to get impressed with his numbers. And you can read through that chapter, first, and beyond even chapter, verse 4, uh, read further into that chapter in First Chronicles 21, you find out that even Joab thought it was a bad idea. Okay? And Joab was, was, was awful. Joab was an unbeliever. Joab was a train wreck. Joab was usually the partner in crime. If, if, if David needed somebody murdered, Joab would get it done. He was the, he was the underhanded, dirty deeds kind of guy. And uh, even Joab said, we don't want to do this census thing. But David insisted, and so it happened. There's an interesting chapter there. But it's the end of his days. That's not David's only failure either. Why was it, when you go to 1 Kings chapter 1 and you see David is old, he's cold, he's not sleeping well at night, they get this virgin to sleep with him, all right? And that's kind of weird for us today, but that was not so weird back then. And, and um, there's chaos in the, in the politics. Solomon is supposed to take the throne, but David has not secured that. And so this brother is going to come and stage a coup, and he's going to almost get it done. Until Nathan and Bathsheba stop it. Why was David so disengaged? Wives are always telling their husbands, get engaged. Here's David disengaged. And it took Bathsheba and and Nathan the prophet to get David engaged and get, get Solomon anointed king in his place. Should have been a co regency for years prior to that, anyway. Well, a lot of failure. And then, of course, Solomon, you know, and his. Sad and tragic example there with all those women and the idolatry that came with those women. Hezekiah example there. Perhaps the greatest example we have because he learned from it is Nebuchadnezzar. We would have liked for Hezekiah to have been a Nebuchadnezzar. The clearest example of a believer falling in pride but recovering to end his days in blessing. He ended his days in blessing was Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonian. The clearest example of a believer falling in pride but recovering to end his days in blessing. Solomon was in that example. I believe they, I believe he wrote Proverbs, then um, Song of Solomon, then Ecclesiastes. In that order. Ecclesiastes and the tragic human viewpoint expression of vanity was the last book he wrote. But Nebuchadnezzar had a recovery written about in Daniel 4. I'm almost done here. Daniel four. See, so much of this prefigures Daniel. The prophecy says your children are going to be servants to Daniel, or servants to Babylon, and this is the book of Daniel. And what happens is Nebuchadnezzar, can I teach this in three minutes? Go get a Daniel notebook from the hallway and read and listen to the Daniel MP threes. Um, Nebuchadnezzar's walking around his roof, just full of himself. Let me tell you, stay off the roof. Look at this. And you just, every time a king goes on the roof, he's just, there's David and seeing Bathsheba and here's Nebuchadnezzar. And he's, he's full of himself and he's full of pride. He says, you know, to me be the great, to the glory, great things I have done. Verse 30 of Daniel 4, the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence, by the might of my power, for the glory of my majesty? You know, if I start looking around this church and get all full of myself, what a great pastor I am, what a great church I have built, blah, blah, blah. I'm doomed. And while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, that was what the prophecy was about earlier in the chapter. The tree got chopped off and a, and a band was placed around the stump. And so he's driven away from mankind and he gets, he's given the mind of a beast. He's going to spend seven years thinking he's an animal. He's out in the backyard eating grass. okay. But seven years later he wakes up. Imagine what kind of haircut you need after seven years. And your fingernails. It says in verse 33, His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until the hair had grown like eagle's feathers and nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me. It's not about your feelings. It's not about your pleasure or what you feel. It's about your thinking molded by the word of God. His reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. And he comes to understand that he is sovereign. No one can ward off his hand. He bestows the kingdom on whom he wishes that he's only king by the grace of God. And so in verse 36, my reason returned to me, my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors, and my nobles began seeking me out. I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true, his ways are just; he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Amen. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. Oh, if Hezekiah could have been a could have been a Nebuchadnezzar, he had an Isaiah, Nebuchadnezzar had a Daniel. I think the the only reason Nebuchadnezzar had a throne waiting for him seven years later is because he had a Daniel holding it for him. It's the only explanation for why some Babylonian general didn't grab the throne and kill the the uh, delusional non-animal in the backyard, okay? I better close with this or I'm going to get in trouble. If, uh, if you think something is true and it's obviously not true, if you think you're an animal and you're eating grass in the backyard, we say you are delusional, you are crazy, you are insane. If we want more politically correct terms, we say you have a mental illness, all right? But if you think you're a woman, oh, wait a minute. If you hold to an irrational belief that is obviously genetically, biologically not true, what do we call that? We celebrate it and make magazine covers. I'm telling you, folks, we are entering into a delusional period of human history. And uh, the emperor has no clothes, but if you dare say so, Look out, because everybody loves how beautiful those clothes look on the emperor. Huh. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you, Father, for Hezekiah. And he was a great king. The end of his life was, was awful. But, Father, uh, there, but by the grace of God, we've got to live day by day. We've got to seek your will in all things. Father, thank you for the word of God that doesn't hide failures. It lays it out for what it is. And I thank you, Father, that you don't expect us to be perfect. None of us are going to be perfect, but we're in Christ and he's the perfect one. And so, Father, we can return grace for grace. We can give a return on the grace we have received by walking in grace and glorifying your son. He's the one that made this possible. I pray that we would be better motivated, Father, to lay aside the pride and embrace the humility of our Savior, that we would remain obedient in all things, that we would pursue your will. Father, we want to walk in your will day by day. So, Father, uh, make this truth very real to each one of us so we may make application that's pleasing in your sight. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.